The work that hurts you less than it hurts others is the work you were made to do. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Joel Smith. Joel is the founder of Just Fly Sports and the host of the Just Fly Performance Podcast, where his top-level coaches from around the world talk about sports performance. He's also the author of the Speed, Sprint, Speed Strength and Vertical Foundations books, both which I've read and got a ton from. I've listened to Joel's podcast for a long time and it really helped shape many of my thoughts on sports performance, as well as introduced me to many of the coaches that I now follow. Uh, he was recommended me from Dr. Tommy John, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this conversation that we had about passion and creativity and how these are the two kind of driving forces for everything that we do in the weight room and how we find ways to reward this in the weight room and how we find ways to implement this in the weight room. And it was a really, really awesome talk that we got into some rabbit holes that I hope you guys get a lot out of. Thank you guys for listening. All right. Well, coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast today. I'm excited for you to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Austin. Thanks for having me. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about how you got to the point you're at now, how you kind of got into the world of sports performance and track and where you're at now? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a long story, but I, I'll try to keep it to, I guess, the, what I call like the defining points. Maybe if we were looking at the ecological dynamics landscape or the, you know, we could say attractors, right? Like what are these attractors that were like these, big, these wells of, of, um, I don't know, opportunity for me. So I, I I've told people this before, but I've been obsessed with human movement ever since a really young age. Um, I remember when I was probably five, like playing tag with my brother and my friends and and I would, would watch the cartoon Speedy Gonzalez. I don't know, that's, I'm sure no one knows what that is anymore, but it was like Looney Tunes. And the guy, the little character was like a mouse. And he was real fast and he would say like, Arriba, Angdale. And, and he would, and then he would run faster. He'd always do it. He you tied that with his running fast. And so I would like practice saying that so I could catch up and run faster because i mean i don't think i was the most gifted necessarily i I have some gifts but i i don't think i was like super i was always trying to find ways i was always trying to find ways at eight years old i was reading it's funny because this is wrong but i was it was a magazine called highlights and there was a mid-distance runner who was at some high level and she's like here's some tips to run faster and you know, lift your knees. And so I remember playing again, tag or whatever on the playground and trying to lift my knees to run. And actually I remember, I remember thinking, I don't know how I remember this, but I remember that it felt faster probably because there was more going on in the air and, you know, but at the end of the day, if I would have the timing system, I probably realized it actually it wasn't faster, but that's a different conversation. Uh, <laughs> took till I was 34 years old to, to not do that anymore and run a little faster. But, uh, so I've just always been totally just taken by the human body and performance and, and everything that goes with that. I, I think that my passions had, especially in an early age, were a lot more in terms of like the, the small, like I guess you could call them like more, more finite, more closed skills, like running fast and jumping high and, and being powerful and, and lifting and getting stronger. Um, now that I'm older, I wish I would have been into more of the things because I, ba- I played team sports, basketball, soccer, and I did track. And I, I was better at track because honestly, I just, uh, one, I think I, did, I lacked some of the spatial awareness that really made you good at team sports. And I think that's because I just didn't play enough team sports as a, you know, ball sports as a kid. I just didn't experience space and time enough. Not that I didn't. I mean, I did. I played soccer and I did all these things and I, I was decent at it, but I wouldn't say that I was great. And I probably didn't play enough sports to be truly great. And I didn't start basketball very early either. And so my game IQ was probably just not as high. I, I think I got away with a lot because I was a good athlete. And so as a basketball player, and, and again, like I'm, I'm 15, 16, I'm buying all the jump programs, I'm buying Air Alert, I'm buying, you know, all the stuff in the back of Slime. I would read Slime Magazine just to check the jump programs out. And that was, I, and, and like, that's your internet when you're, you know, in whatever that was, 95. Like, <laughs> who knows? It'd be interesting what would happen to me if, you know, it was now and I could just type a Google search and you get a million different things. And I, I kind of, but at the same time, it's almost cool because, and me and my colleague Paul Cater have talked about this. It's kind of like, if you look at education, like you have like the Steiner Waldorf method of let, just letting kids be creative until they're a certain age and not teaching them anything formal until they're a certain age. And then they can get all the formal stuff. It's like, just play until, and I kind of feel like I was just playing until I was 20. And I think that was really good because as soon as you start to get into, you know, formal education and here's, and this, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but this philosophy of, oh, we've mastered the body. We know how to train people. And you start putting athletes and you start putting technique and you start putting coaching in boxes. Now all of a sudden, 
I think you're really, um, you're really suppressing the creativity that I think you need as an early athlete and coach. And, and that is absolutely not fostered at all in, you know, our university educational system, or I think our, you know, certification systems. And I, you know, so I don't, how to foster, that's a different story, but I, I but anyways, um, so it's just very, you know, creative and just blazing my own path and very anecdotal. Like, did this work? Did it not work? Trying all these methods. And, and I, I was say too, to my point too, uh, where I'm at now, I would have loved to go back into my basketball and soccer and, you know, almost coach myself emotionally, like mentally and psychologically to get more out of that experience. But for that time, I mean, I just was interested in power and I could jump high and I could dunk. Uh, I dunked the ball when I was 14, um, which I kind of shoot myself in the foot by saying that because if I was this genius who doubled my vertical when I was seven, you know, I'm saying like, I, I'm discrediting myself. I have had elastic talent, you know, I mean, I just have, I mean, I've always loved this stuff, but I've, I have elastic talent. Anyways, um, so yeah, I went through college, university, and you know the typical rigmarole. Um, did uh, started coaching Wisconsin lacrosse, which is a huge you know D three near you and big D three track program, and that's a big reason I actually went to grad school there uh, was to to coach there. I had a good uh, tracker. I was an NAIL American at Cedarville and high jump. And, um, I think I might've been in javelin if I wouldn't have blown my elbow up <laughs> my senior year. I only threw for two years, but I was pretty good at it. And so it had some good success on that level. And then just coached uh, two years at lacrosse, four years at a place called Wilmington college, um, had again, some decent success there, the national champion, the 55 meter dash and nearly a national champion high jump. So I was, you know, I was doing okay with what I had. Um, and that was a huge time for me just to grow professionally. Cause honestly, maybe we'll get this. I literally had no idea what it was to be a professional at all, like at all. But then Wisconsin, uh, Wilmington went from Wilmington, a really big jump to from D three to D one, which barely ever happens. And I can get into a little bit more of the specifics of that later. Um, but, but with the opportunity, really a niche opportunity being a strength coach for track, you know, it's like I had done strength and conditioning and I was doing strength and conditioning at Wilmington. Um, and I, you know, I've always obviously had an interest in that element. So that got me to UC Berkeley, Cal. I also was working with tennis within that scope. I eventually switched over to more work in aquatics, uh, which is interesting, but it's been a huge and massive growth opportunity for me. Uh, and then I've had just fly sports, which many people know me for since 2011. And so that's just been a big outlet there. And, uh, yeah, that's been my, my experience thus far as, oh, I will say too, I've been involved in the club track scene too, for the last eight, uh, seven years. And so that's been a positive opportunity for me as well to stay with track and speed and all that stuff. I, I love a couple of the points. And before I dive into some of the specific things that I want to talk about, um, I'm interested in what kind of your journey was like to create just fly sports. And cause you, you hear a lot of coaches talk about wanting to blaze their own path and kind of take control of their own career. But I feel like you kind of created just fly sports before people were really talking about being an entrepreneur or having your own path, your own career path as a strength coach. So what was kind of that process and how'd you come up with that idea? Yeah. Um, well, I've always, it, someone told me, asked me what I wanted to do my senior year of college when I was 22. And I will say I had a lot of, um, we can go down this rabbit hole as much as you want, but a lot of negative thoughts just about money and success. It was basically go to college, find a job that pays enough to live <laughs> and that you don't mind or like and, and do that. And and so I remember as I'm in college, I'm sitting here like, okay, like, and I was an athletic, I was an athletic training major for two years, which I can't believe, like my dad signed me up for it. This is how sad I was professionally. Cause I was so demotivated through high school. Like I was always super creative as a kid and, and I've always had this huge passion for sports. But as soon as I got to about third grade, I just was one of those kids that the school system is not meant for the, our school system, not saying the school system or education in general, but the way we, our educational system works was completely demotivating for me. And, um, I just, I lost interest and I lost interest in even, and also the way work was portrayed for me as a child was just like, I was never motivated even to work, which is sad. Um, I, I mean, that changed, that changed when I was 18. Um, but just, just the life was not, I was not taught life at all. It was really, really bad. And maybe we can get into that, but someone asked me anyways, long story short, it's like, I was athletic training. I'm looking at these salaries and it's like coaching. And, and I'm like, and I was talking to like these strength coaches. Uh, I remember when I was 21 and I started to do my internships and how much these strength coaches make or anything like this and, and how much they work. And I'm like, man, I, I, that like, you know, I had like a pit in my stomach thinking about it. 
Of course, I will say too, it is a thing for strength coaches, I think, to also exaggerate because like how much time do you have in the middle of the day to do whatever you want? You know, and I'm not saying it's good. Like it sucks to leave before your kids go up and get home when they're sleeping. If that, And I know people do that. And that really is, that's rough. That's a grind. Um, but you also have a lot of time in the middle of the day too. I'm not saying that that makes up for it, but I will say like there's always time to do, to, to work on things that I think can be benefit for you in, in side hustle or anything like that. And so anyway, someone asked me when I was 22 and they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I think I want to coach track and then have like a website or something, you know, to like make my ends meet. And I, for some reason that was in my head all the way back then. And so when I was in grad school, I actually started a blog. It was just a jumps coach or something, or even I will say the first thing was actually, it was a site called track shark when I was 22. And I, as an athlete got in there, I was, I was just doing a log, like here's my training, here's what I'm doing. And that was kind of my first experience in writing publicly. And, and people were responding to it. And then I, I started a formal blog when I was 23, just talking about training and my experiences. And it was called like Jumps Coach something. Maybe it was Jumps Coach 214 or whatever the YouTube was. I don't even know. It was on Blogger. And it was just kind of my outlet in grad school to like say, hey, I have all these thoughts and I just like writing and I like... And so that was, the, that was Just Fly before Just Fly had a name. Um, what really started it was, and I mentioned... I was woefully inadequate at anything involving a job and career and professionalism. I mean, I, I worked, I started working as a mover to pay for my college when I was 18. And, and just, you know, that this idea of just exchanging slave labor essentially for, you know, a few bucks an hour. And, but I didn't mind that. I liked working with other, you know, males and that camaraderie and doing a physical job. That was really important for me because that at least got me, uh, I think that got me going with at least being productive and not just playing video games all day because that's what I did before that and still until my mid-20s. When I started Just Fly Sports, I, did, I stopped, which is essential. Um, anyways, I started Just Fly Sports my third year out of four at Wilmington College. And it was kind of a point where, again, I'm, I am a person who, and I believe this, there was a book that was sent to me by Zach Evanesh called The Willpower Myth, or he recommended it. And essentially the gist of it is you are a product of your environment. I think that's a spectrum though. I think some people are really a product of their environment and some people defy their environment. But I think on average, we are what our circumstances allow for us or create in us. And even in, and I'll talk about this, even in shifting completely to the private sector, which is where I'm headed, I've wanted to do that too, because I feel like just that, to see what happens when there's no comfort of a steady paycheck and you know all these things and health insurance that's given to you. And I, I can already see that changing me even more, which I'm excited for because I'm excited for this next step in my journey. Um, and I, I, so anyways, you're producting your, your environment. And I, my, and Wilmington, my first few years, it's like, okay, at least I have a job. I'm just happy to have a job because when I was 24, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, I was at Wisconsin Cross and they won the national championship and I have a master's degree and I'm going to just like send my resume out to, for track and field because that's what I decided I want to do at that point. I was like either track or strength. I don't sure. And then I was like, I like track more. So I'm going to do track. And I still remember sending my resume out and just zero responses, following up, trying to do a good job, my resume and my cover letter. And there's just nothing, nothing, nothing. And even these little jobs at D3 schools that I thought for sure, or NAI schools, I thought for sure I'd get an interview for something just absolutely zero. Like the whole summer I was totally blanked. And in, in retrospect, some of those jobs are way over my head that I applied for, but I was really, that was a really depressed and low time in my life. Like I remember that was a time where I literally like, I, I don't, I, I'm a little disconnected, I think from my inner emotions, sometimes my subconscious emotions, I have a lot of filter, but I would say if there was some, some level of depression, I'm usually super positive and upbeat, but that, that was the defeating time for me. And I was just happy to have a job at Wilmington. I was like, I actually get paid to coach people. This is my dream. Like this is, this is, this is not even a job. I just am fully enjoying this, but things got really difficult at Wilmington because it's like many D3 schools. It's a tuition, it's an enrollment driven institution where the majority of athletes or students or a large number of students are athletes. They rely heavily on people who just want to keep playing sports and have the American college experience. And student loans are the easiest thing to get in the world. And the government's going to you know, give you a loan to go to school. And so, and so I was my biggest part of my job at the end of the day, as far as administration is concerned, is recruiting kids. Um, but recruiting kids, at, and especially in Ohio at small schools, I just remember there was a day where I called up a recruit. So I struggled with recruiting, especially females, because the amount of like females that wanted to do track in college was not, it's, I mean, it's a fixed bucket. And you got dozens, if not hundreds of colleges digging into that bucket from a small area. I just remember one day, I, I would call a girl who had run like 30 seconds in the 200 meter dash in high school, which is not, I mean, working in club track, there's 11 year olds probably. I think I, I need to go check the times because sometimes I forget like what's fast for 11, but there's, 
definitely 12 year olds running faster than that. And this girl, and this girl was going to get a scholarship from another college for running 30 seconds. And I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, like I'm, I'm spending all this time calling people up, begging them to come to my school essentially. And this is the most defining part of my job. And this cannot be my life. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's fun to coach people in track, but if you're in that situation, really your life is getting kids in the door. And I'm like, this cannot be my life. Um, as much as I love coaching and everything else. And there were some other issues there too, that I think partly I brought upon myself. Like I was given some other like jobs and keeping the weight room clean. And I was just like, I don't get paid enough to do this. So I didn't, I wasn't really like following through very much with some of my other um, responsibilities that weren't in my contract, but still it was, you know, it's a pri- if I go back in time, I'd do better at that stuff. And so, um, you know, it just, and also just getting a lot, very different philosophy with my boss and, and troubles there. We're all good now, but I just, I was, I was really over it. Like I was like, this is, it, it's like, you almost think you're like, you're all excited and you got into this and you love it. But then all of a sudden you realize I don't get paid anything. And my job is just getting kids in the door. And a lot of these kids don't even last at this college. Like they just, they get a loan and they go to college for one or two years and then they're working in retail. Like, what am I doing? And so it was like the first time in my life, I remember I'm like, okay, I've got to, I got to start this. I also had a relationship that failed um, partially because it was like, you know, this girl's like, you wanted me to stay local. And, and I was like, oh, I want to, I, I have to get another job at some point. I have to go, you know, across the country or get another job across the country. And that, that really wasn't a major thing, but it was a thing. Cause I felt like that was, that was a big emotional drain on just like, just like having freedom, like, and, and just the freedom to do what I want, not being tied to bouncing around the country and, 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 and this recruiting business and everything, everything that had to do with that. I'm not saying that that can't be a good job. It was just for me, I needed more freedom for, I just felt like everything that I've done and learned and just my passion for training athletes was not being maximally leveraged because that wasn't my, you know, maybe if I'm a great coach on the D3 level, maybe I get an athlete to run one tenth faster in the hundred meters than a decent coach. You know what I'm saying? Like, or maybe two tenths faster. Like if I'm a great coach. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, let me, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm finally going to do what I said I was going to do. And for the longest time I thought I was going to take computer programming. I'm going to like learn to code and, and, and I'm going to do this myself. Cause I, I'm going to, I'm going to trade all the time. I waste playing video games in the summer and I'm going to learn to code. So I'm like going to Barnes and Noble and I'm kind of like looking at computer books and I'm just like, I can't do this. Like, I don't know enough to do this. And I was listening to some businessy stuff. And anyways, I got, um, so I, I, I got, um, uh, Jake Clark, who is all the back end of Just Fly Sports, is my business partner. He was a javelin thrower when we started. He was 21, I think, when we started all this. And I was just like, hey, like I'm starting a website. Now you're into graphic design and all this. And well, let's do a website together. I've always wanted to do this. And I was also really high on this. I, got, I bought a book called Get Rich Click. <laughs> and, and on the first page, it was uh, Jacob Hiller who wrote the jump manual. I think that was it, but it is. Yeah. And it's like, he made, you know, his, the jump manual made like seven figures because of ClickBank and all the affiliate stuff. And I'm like, man, if this guy can make seven figures, you know, and he's not even like, doesn't even actually coach people. Like, I mean, he probably coached a few people, but he didn't like actually work at a school or like a the facility or anything is to my knowledge. I was like, oh, I got to do way better. And we were all like high on that, you know? And, and, and looking back, I actually realized, you know, what's funny is actually, I look at some of the stuff in that program that gets scoffed at by a lot of university coaches. Like, you know, there's actually some decent stuff in here, the way that it's like bi-weekly cycles. I can see this. We aren't working for people. But so that was the start of it all. And I just remember the feeling of freedom was so energizing and massive that, I mean, I was I, all of a sudden, like my life was completely changed because all of a sudden my own destiny was in my own hands. And, and I was like, you know, I'd work, I'd do my recruiting, I'd do everything. And I remember I'd stay up from eight to 11 to, to work on articles and blogs. And I started drinking coffee and like that was the start of coffee for me. And, uh, but it's like all of a sudden your, your career is in your own hands. And to me, that, for me personally, that was the biggest feeling to feel like I am not tied to a job. And yeah, so ever since, yeah, I, I just remember too, like, that I was at a track meet. I remember this, it was, I think at Emory university and we released our first free ebook and it, like within a day we had like 350 signups just for emails. And I was like, uh, like, you know, it's like, I mean, we didn't make any money, but that was, I just remember those were like these defining moments of like, of, of faith where it's like, wow, I think we're doing something. And so anyways, slowly throughout the years, it's just expanded and become more of a thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, that, so that, that was the start. It was basically born out of, I think, frustration. And finally that I needed to put my money where my mouth was. And I also needed to partner with somebody who was really good at a lot of things that I wasn't so good at and just 
Cause if it was me coding, I think we would, we would not be here today for one thing. Uh, and the site probably still wouldn't be done. So yeah, that was a really important one. Well, I think this is, this is something that I've been writing and talking to about a lot. And I love the way you brought it up because I think you're the perfect story about this is like everybody. And I was definitely in college. Like I all thought it was, I always thought it was mental toughness and grit and just like, go at it, go at it, go at it. And the more like I'm, I'm looking at it and reading about it and thinking about it, it's, it's less about mental toughness and less about grits and just getting after. And it's more about, Hey, like I find this enjoyable and that's why I'm doing more work at it. Like that's why you're working those, the, the hours after your actual job is because you found it enjoyable. Like you found your passion, you found the, the, the love for something like that. And it's less about the grit, less about the mental toughness and more about finding what you're actually passionate about and what you can be creative with. And you, like you said, you had the freedom with that to, to make something happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's the most, it's the most energizing thing. And I think we all evolve as coaches over time. And I do think, you know, they talk about burnout in the strength and conditioning profession. I think a lot of it happens because of, um, you know, the circumstance of, of long hours and low pay and maybe not enough freedom if, if you are, and I don't think all people are meant to be entrepreneurs too. I think that I'm not sure. I mean, 120 years ago or whatever, everyone was an entrepreneur, right? And it's just the way things have gotten bigger, you know, government corporations, everything's getting bigger. And so maybe that's just changed, but I'm not sure if everyone's really destined to necessarily be that, but I will say that it's like when you find that true purpose, like that true North, like you, it, it, it comes with it a world of energy. And I also know that too, that's not without its, you know, ups and downs. I mean, that's being an entrepreneur is also difficult, but anyways, that it's, it's, it's been majorly energizing and a huge force in my own life. And, and the other thing I kind of want to, I want to touch on a little bit from your high school years is you mentioned like you were going through the programs and I think a lot of people do this is like the dark age of high school. It's like, you're just trying whatever's thrown at you. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but you, you talked about your basing programs and you're basing things on, did this work or did this not work? And then not suppressing that creativity with that. And I think that was an awesome or just interesting point is we, I feel like we all start off with the, the common sense there when going into this field of, we go into it with, we're trying to make ourselves better. So we're going to do things that work or don't work. And if they don't work, then we cut them out and, and we're open with the creativity and we're trying to be open about everything. And then we kind of get into the, the square box that is what's taught to us, the set and red schemes and that type of stuff. And we come out of university when we should almost be ahead of where we were, but we're almost behind where we were because we're not thinking about it in the way of did this work, did it not work? We're thinking about it in the way of this set and red scheme was what was taught to me. So we're going to implement this. I can tell you for a fact that... <laughs> When I was 25, I, I Wilmington, uh, which this was awesome is, is actually, was it, was 25? I think 25 or 26 is in addition to my coaching job, I was able to make some extra money by teaching, um, a couple courses, uh, you know, I had my master's degree and so I could teach and I taught a strength and three credit strength and conditioning course. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through, I'm going to do, um, you know, science and practice, which was a good book, but I'm also going to go through the NSCA, you know, handbook to teach people lifts and how to squat and all this stuff. And honestly, me starting to learn to squat the NSCA way really hurt me like that. And I didn't even figure it out till I was like six years, five, six years later. I was like, oh, because it's like, oh, man, I didn't know I was supposed to squat through my heels and push my knees out. Like, oh, this is the way you're supposed to squat. Like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just hilarious like this. And this is what is taught. And it's just, it's just, there's no, I mean, you know, if for me, I remember, and I almost like, I, I, I kick myself for not having better training logs when I was younger. I have a training log that I think I lost and I hope it shows up in a box somewhere because this is like, I don't know, like I, I would pay, if I, I would pay, like if I had to pay someone like a thousand dollars to have this, I would pay it. And it's a log of when I was 21, it's the year I high jumped seven feet. And it's like the year before I jumped six, eight, you know, a triple jump, like 41 underwhelming as hell. And then the next year I had jumped seven feet and I triple jumped 46 and just like blew everything out of the water. And I remember, and I had a training lock for most of that year. And one of the things I remember when squatting is I just squatted in a way that felt good. No one taught me how to squat. Our, our, our coach wasn't teaching us lifts. I actually totally blew him off too. I was like, like, I remember he tried to teach us how to clean and he was like pulling with his arms before his legs finished. I was like, all right, I'm done. Like I, I, I so I just kind of squatted. I just squatted what felt good. And I remember what felt good this year that I jumped seven foot. And it was a realization too. I remember my sophomore year was obsessed with getting a huge clean. Cause I was like, you know, you read those stories out of, I was bigger, faster, stronger, some Soviet guy, clean jerk 500 at 197 and he could high jump seven feet off three steps. Yeah. Three steps. And it's a little different, but I, so I was obsessed with getting my clean up the year before. And then I realized my junior that my squat was so terrible. And again, it's, it's not a great squat is not gonna make you a great high jumper, but I was so weak at that movement, just period. And I'd so transform myself into more of a back driven, you know, kind of cleaning person that 
um, I just needed to balance like Bruce Saxayer talks about. There's a balance between squats and Olympic lifts and it depends on who you are, but I was like, I need to squat more. And I remember the squat that felt good to me was a very four foot knees oriented kind of four foot oriented feeling. Like I just thought it was closer stance. It just felt right. Like it just felt like I was activating the right muscles. And I can't tell you how I came about that. It was just, I think that's just that creativity I'm talking about where no one's telling you what to do. You're just kind of doing what your body feels is good to do. And now coming back to now, I'm like, yeah, that is a pretty good way to squat. You know, like you're, you know, you're four foot dominant still, you're loading the anterior chain, which, you know, appropriately you're getting good glute activation. I mean, you're not going to get a ton of hamstring no matter what, so who cares? And if you're going to get hamstrings, just sprint and, you know, do glute ham raises and stuff, you know, like, so I don't know, it was just, it was just, I just intuitively did what I was supposed to do. And I look back and it's just like, and then I let an organization that doesn't like, you know, work with track athletes and just has, you know, it's just like, how do you know what you know? I ask that all the time. I ask it with anything, but how did you get this? How do you know this? And I think a lot of it's like, like anything, it's maybe some stuff that people did to, if someone was getting hurt because they had poor hip mobility, well, here's the fix, quote unquote, is just push your knees out. And I get it. And I get it. If someone has, you know, bad mobility or bad dorsiflexion, sure. Like that will probably keep you from getting hurt. But there's a lot of other alternatives to that. And it's just, it's just square peg and a round hole. And yeah, I just think creativity is a massive and underappreciated element of, you know, of all this. And I think that especially with interns too. I'm an experiential person with interns. I want them to do five minute. I mean, part of it's maybe sadistic on my part. I don't know, but like go do a five minute ISO lens and go do that, you know, like just like getting them to experience stuff. And it's, I think it's important. Well, and that's the, the creativity part of something that, I mean, we touched on even before we started recording, but how we implement that into our programs as coaches, because an athlete comes to us or just like historically, like a coach has been something that fixes in quotations, like they, they fix your form, they, they fix who you are as an athlete. And what I'm starting to realize and what I'm hearing more and more people say is like you said, what felt good? Like, what are the best doing? Like, how are they just naturally figuring it out and putting their bodies into that position and making it work with what their body has? And the thing that, and I talked to Cameron Joss about this as well, but how do you personally go about as a coach now, you have an athlete that wants you to, they want to get faster. They want to jump higher to where you're fixing things in quotations. You're fixing what this athlete wants you to fix, but you're doing it in a way that is allowing them to figure it out. It's allowing them to do what their body does. And it's not, forcing them into that, that peg, you know, that you're not the, the square hole in the peg. Yeah. Uh, dude, that's been the last, ever since I got in the swim world, that's been it for me. And that's part of the reason I think I'm, I'm in the swim world is to learn so much in there. Well, I will say this, like, like running you're, is, is totally innate. Like you, you're, you're walking, you know, you do the podcast with Tommy John and perhaps you mentioned this, like you're furiously just trying to balance on one leg ever since you're, you know, months old. And it's just wired in our system to walk and then run or jog and then run. And I watch my kids. I have kids that are two and three and I just watch them do these skills and learn them themselves. And I think to myself, what if I was, if I was trying to teach them how to do this, it would totally mess them up. I mean, no question, no question. It would totally mess them up. And so at what point do I have the audacity as a coach to come in and say, this is wrong. Here's a model that someone came up with that you need to do. Where did that come from? Like, and I think a lot of it comes from a combination of it could be ignorance, it could be ego. Like, and I, I was just reading a quote in a Charles Eisenstein book that was really interesting. It was um, basically our own self confidence and self love dictates how open we are to new possibilities. And sometimes I almost think like, you know, people who just have this one idea in their head that everyone needs to run like this and throw like this. I just did a podcast with Eric Cressy talking about how there's no perfect technique in you know, pitching and there's different tech. And I know you spend a lot of time with the emergence guys and that being a, you know, a huge, and that's a big thing I've, I've also been picking up on as well. But anyways, I, I think of, I very much think about it just manufactured athletes, athletes who are kind of hammered into this, this technique that doesn't, you know, and, and body types are so different. I was just having a conversation with Corey Schlesinger recently about how the talus bone has so many different possible, like, you know, the talus bone is, uh, connects to your calcaneus. It's like a free floating joint in the foot. And it's, it's a, it's a cornerstone of our foot articulation. And there's so many different ways that that bone, we can be born with that bone. Like that bone is not the same in every person, the way it articulates and the way the facets are. So to say everyone's feet should point this way in X, Y, Z, right. And how your feet point depends is going to impact your technique. If your feet point straighter ahead, you're going to be more facilitated for probably ground, longer ground contact times. If they point out the side, shorter ground contact times, all these things will impact what ultimately is outputted. And so I've had a huge opportunity to learn from the swim world because swimming is in 3D. It's not, 
you know, it, it's, it's, you have tension throughout the body. There's more sensation. You have different water tensions at different parts of your body and you have to, you can't fight the water. You can't like, you're never going to watch a swimmer just like slap the water. If you're, if you're swimming, it's just like, I've seen swimmers do it as a joke, but no one does that. And yet in track, we tell people to punch the, to punch the ground, which would be the same thing as saying slap the water. It's just, it's just way more apparent in swimming that this isn't the best idea. And so to be a good swimmer, you, you can't fight the water. You have to work with the water. You and the water are almost like one thing. And I found the same thing at work with the Darien bar. I find, I look at the cues he gives and I look at the foot and I try to almost mold. I find I work the best when I'm just having awareness of the foot and what it's doing at a particular point. And I'm not trying to force anything. And so my, um, my model really is, and I do, I do have some technical things in mind. Like I have principles, like, like Adrian Barr's athletic posture, like that's a principle and that's going to dictate where your sternum is pointing is going to dictate things. Um, and that, uh, that too, and that actually you could go dig deeper and say, well, what your sternum's doing is actually probably a part of a, what's going on in your head between your ears. Your emotional state's going to dictate posture. What people think of themselves is going to dictate posture. How aware you are is going to dictate posture. And so a lot of that comes from higher order stuff. And you can remind people, I mean, but that's easy to, you know, kind of look at and fix. So, but outside of some of those more co- that, that core, like center position, like if someone's sprinting and their sternum's pointing down, yeah, I'm probably going to say something about your sternum and, and keep it ahead or awareness, whatever. But where I've, I'll just talk about sprinting. This is where I've kind of gone over the years is I, I just give athletes experiences and I say, okay, like, like here's a simple one. Uh, I want you to run hundred meters and the, in 20 meter segments and the first, you know, the first 20, the 40 to 60, and then the last 80 to hundred, I want you to run with low knees. The other two segments, I want you to run with high knees. Tell me what it felt like, you know, what did it feel like to run with low knees? What did it feel like to run with high knees? Uh, just drawing their awareness to ask them to do something and just draw their awareness to how that felt. Did it feel good? Did it feel bad? Did you feel faster? Um, and then, and then you can maybe start bringing in the timing system and you can reference some of these things and you're allowing them to reference what felt good. And that way you're not like punching them into this technical model. So that's one thing that I I really rely pretty heavily on. I also like just even things like, you know, it's sprinting. You could say just run with a sled and it's probably, I was talking with Cameron, you mentioned Cameron Joss, like we were talking about this and squatty runs and the fact that if someone has a sled on them, it's probably going to make them squatty run, you know, (laughs) to a degree. And so, you know, using environment to change people without even thinking about where they don't even have to think, just use the environment, use external constraints. And it's probably going to get this output that you're probably looking for anyways, in some ways. And then if they're still not getting it now, let's find a way to maybe draw your awareness into some of these things. But I really try to never say for the most part, like do this, you know, take your limb and do this. Uh, it's oftentimes, what is this feeling? What's this limb doing? Uh, what does it want to do? What do you feel like when I ask you to do this constraint? What does it feel like when I ask you to do that constraint? But ultimately if I can just put them in these environments where, where a lot of it is taken care of and that fixes it for them, that's the best. Um, I try to just stay away from the cues as much as I can. And I do have, and I'll say also, I, I watch elites and I've got this from a Darian bar is we tend to just discount the freaks. Like we tend to watch you St. Bold or Shelly Ann Fraser or these, the best. And we say, Oh, there's freaks. Doesn't matter. But it's like, like, and granted everyone's different, right? Like my techniques not going to be like Shelly Ann Fraser. It's not gonna be like bolt, but there's things that they do that, are, are, are almost out that it's just mechanically that are outside of their body structure that are to be paid attention to. And so if you want to know the model or things that general commonalities that are good, watch the best and, and watch them intensely and be super open-minded. Like that's the key is you have to watch the best and be open-minded. And I think that's where we can start to really guide athletes. It's a facilitation. It's not, it's not a, I am the coach and I know XYZ. It's, you know, your subconscious brain is an insane supercomputer that we're not going to be able to get to for 50 years. And I think it knows what it's doing. So I'm going to try to guide that supercomputer into your best technique. And that's, um, that's where I've gone to with that stuff. I think that probably fits with a lot of the, the new motor learning stuff that's coming out. So yeah, it's been a fun, fun journey for me there. Yeah. You just summed up pretty much the whole rabbit hole I've been in for the last year. <laughs> like everything that you mentioned, like w- watching the kids is something that uh, Tommy, Dr. Tommy John put me on to is like watch kids and then just see what they're doing and why they're doing it and talking about not trying to like fix that kid. And one of the things I, I saw there was like volume wise, even like every, every person wants to like be like, they'll, I'll see it with my athletes a lot. Like they'll come in the foam roll, like they'll just take care of their bodies in quotations, but it seems like they're almost babying their bodies. When you watch a little kid play, like 
Dr. Tommy John talked about, like you'll see a kid do 50 depth drops off of a playground set without like, without worrying about anything. They're never going to go foam roll. They're never going to do anything. And I get the recovery periods and like the force of producing is different, but that was something that was like watching kids like that. That's something that is amazing. And then that talking about the manufactured athlete, like I mentioned this multiple times on the podcast, but with the football guys, like we'll literally have guys come into us that can deadlift and squat 500 plus pounds, like just beefy manufactured guys. And you ask them to do a cartwheel, you ask them to roll, you ask them to crawl and they'll, they'll look at you like, are, are you kidding me? Like, get out of here. Like, I'm not going to do these things. And it, like, we're just throwing a bunch of stuff on non-human movement. We don't have a human movement foundation to build this stuff upon. And we have like that, like you mentioned that manufactured athlete. And then finally the, 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 what did it feel like part of it? Like, this is the number one part that I try to like my athletes get so frustrated with me sometimes because they'll, they'll ask, they really, really want fixes. They want something quick. They want to fix like, Oh, what should I do? I'm like, figure it out. Like what, what's going to work for you? Like what, what are you feeling like? And when they get it put and once you, once you break through with that athlete and you talk to them for a little bit and they start to realize, and it starts to make sense, like, Oh, that's why I'm doing that. That's why I'm feeling that this is what I'm feeling. And it's one of the first times they're asked that question. They're, they're starting to actually look in rather than just being told what to do. Yeah. Athletes are very short. I found very short on being able to sense their own bodies. And, and, and I, I think the best athletes do that without even thinking about it. It's just wired in their system. Like you look at like the Jamaican sprinters. Like I love watching. There's a, a uh, if you look at acceleration, slow motion, on YouTube, it, you see a, a, a video of a Safa Powell and Usain Bolt from a front view, dead front view coming out side by side. And you see these rotations that are not happening in the typical sprinter, the manufactured sprinter. But yet these guys are like Usain Bolt, who's 6'5", is, is with these shorter, faster, you know, smaller, more compact guys out of the blocks because he's using this rotation. And I don't think that his coaches were teaching him any of that. I think he just figured it out. And I just think that that's such a dismissed thing is to be able to figure out. I mean, you could, I mean, you can make all these arguments about, I'm kind of in like the Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake rabbit hole of, you know, like, uh, you know, skills, skills in the field and quote your quotes in the field and, and, and stuff that kind of goes on the DNA rabbit hole. And, but, um, I think that, cause I do think some, I just even watch my son, like my son can throw like, like the kids that can just throw and my daughter never really could. And there was no real difference in anything. It's just, I think just different people are tuned and enjoy different skills from birth. And it's almost like, it's almost like woven into us in some way. I don't think we're all equal in that regards. So there is different levels. This is just my N of two example with two children. So I, <laughs> if I have more kids, I will let you know. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just, I love watching athletes figure it out. Like, and I, I'm excited to work with more youth and even in youth track, like, Oh, it just kills me. Like I'm sitting there and I watch the head coach, like warming these kids up. And I watch all these kids, especially the fast ones, just doing all this stuff really well like athletically, like the way a Darian, you know, would, would mention, describe it. And then the coach is like, Oh no, don't do that. Swing your arms this way, lift your knees like this. And then you could see that some of the, like half of the kids will try it what the coach said and the half of the kids won't. And even the kids who are trying it are still not, are still doing the athletic stuff. Kind of like they're still sneaking it in there. And I'm like, that's good. And then usually, you know, if I end up, you know, I'll work with them later. I'm like, I, I try to kindly say, let's not do that with your arms. And it's just, it's a fight. Um, so yeah, I, that is part of the field. I hope to, I hope to help in that fight to give power back to the athlete. And that would sum up, you know, some, I, I kind of like thought about my own mission statement. This was like a big moment, maybe four months ago. I was like, what am I doing? I want to give the power back to the athlete because I think it's how often does a coach take away your power? And I, and it, whether it be forcing you into a technique that doesn't fit with you, your own like power or, you know, obviously all there's tons of just bad coaching period mentally and emotionally and all that stuff too. Um, I do think it's fine to have a bad coach every now and then because you need to experience a bad fit to have some good too. You know, I, I don't, I'm not like think that everything should be perfect and fluffy, but I just think athletes power is taken away far too often. And if I had to have a mission statement, I think it would probably have something to do with that. So it's a, uh, it's kind of all, it's a very expansive thing, but that's, that's the thing I'm really into. No, I love that. And you mentioned it with track, but I, I, I was going down the baseball rabbit hole the other day for some, I think I saw Barry Bonds video and I was like, holy crap, that dude's an animal steroids or not. Like that dude technically is just better than everybody. And one of the cool things that I noticed was very, very similar is there's, there's two parts. One, there was elite level home run swingers that were talking about coaches told them to do one thing 
And they never did that. And they talked about their unique swing. And I was like, this dude is leading the league in home runs. Like maybe we should all have our unique swings rather than fixing it. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting is you could tell there were special athletes that had been tried to be manufactured. They had tried to, coaches had told them one thing. So when they were asked about their swing, many times they didn't know what they were doing. They they didn't think about it. They just did it. Like they just happened like, That's how their body flew and they didn't have to think about this. And two, they talked about doing things. Like they would talk about maybe it was keeping their elbow high or doing something with their hands, but you would watch their actual swing. And these are the things they were told to focus on and do. But if you watch their actual swing, they didn't do any of these things. Mm -hmm. They they were naturally figuring it out and they were repeating what they had been told, but that wasn't what made them successful. Their natural unique swing is what made them successful. 100%. I'm glad you brought up baseball because that was actually one of my first experiences with a coach that destroyed my creativity where my whole, like baseball was my favorite sport from probably 10 to 12. I I like soccer until I was about 10, 11. And then baseball has really taken off for me and pitching. And I love watching pitchers and I love watching some of the things that they did like with their knee and the way they, and I would try to copy them and I'd go out and throw against the wall or like throw it, throw to my dad. And I remember, and then I remember uh, being in, it was just like the rec league, but some dad, you know, sports dad, you know, who, and the favoritism was just crazy on that team. But I remember he, uh, and it's, it's just, I'm where I'm supposed to be. So I'm not, I don't have any, like, I'm not like, oh, this should have been this way. I'm supposed to where I'm supposed to be. This is supposed to happen. But I remember the first that he was like, he was watching me pitch. He's like, oh, you're doing it all wrong. And he wanted me to like, and actually he was coaching me even from my own limit. Like he was telling me to like stop my foot and, and step and then stop and then throw. And I'm like, what? Like, that's not how you're supposed to do it. And the guy was told, I don't know what that guy was thinking. Like I, but, but I just remember he like destroyed my, from that moment, like my creativity and pitching was destroyed. And all of a sudden I'm like, I, I mean, literally like I didn't last much longer in baseball. I think that was actually my last season. Those coaches kind of flattened me and then basketball was my thing. But I just, yeah, I remember that very distinctly. And I, lo- I, I think about this and I think I've talked about this with Darian is like the best athletes are those who just don't pay attention to what their coaches are telling them so often. And, and I talk with my buddy, Paul Cater about this, who he's been in the MLB for quite a while, working with like the Orioles and stuff like that. And, and he, he'll tell you, he's like the best athletes are not the best in the weight room and the best in the weight room too. I'm mean, air quotes. The athletes who are oftentimes the best in the weight room are the ones who wanted to use more willpower to be better. And again, there's nothing wrong with, with working really hard. I mean, I'm, I'm very for, you know, being devoted and intentional and to, and, uh, you know, winners do extra book legacy. Like I get it. Um, but I think it's how you go about doing that work. And I think a lot of people, you can see it in people's faces. It's just like, like you can see every rep is just like this, this, um, like they're going to do extra in the weight room. They're going to get strong, but they're also good. Those, those types of people who are like the, the, the gym rat kind of type person, I think are also the people who are going to go the extra nine yards technically and be overthinking. And it's like, they're trying to do everything from the, the forebrain and, but that's not what the best athletes do. You know, <laughs> the, I mean, and that's the difference between these guys who are trying to, the lower level guys. And Paul talks about this, the lower level guys who are just trying to make it. And they're the ones who are just trying to use the willpower to do everything and think that's going to get them through. And then the best guys, the guys who just boom, boom, boom. It just all comes from, in, you know, comes from instinct. It comes from being wired to do this. It comes from the confidence of being wired to do this. And I, that's really cool too. That I never heard that you know, with the baseball and the home runner hitters. I like that anecdote as well. I just, we need to like compile these anecdotes somewhere. <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah, and the, even like you, you talked about the pitching world, and this is something. I, this is another rabbit hole is the is the QB world and the quarterbacks. And you talk about throwing mechanics, and this is something that's kind of driving me nuts recently with the NFL. Is they talk about this guy's throwing mechanics, and we need to fix his throwing mechanics, and we need to do this and like the most successful quarterbacks in the league, like Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, like Russell Wilson, like what they do is create, like they create throwing patterns. They, they find solutions to problems. They are not having that perfect throwing pattern. And this is where I think, and I'm not an NFL scout like this. I'm not in that league, but where I think we miss out is we're looking for that person to have that perfect throwing mechanics. We're doing this rather than looking for the person that can solve problems on the field, rather than looking for the person that's creating solutions to problems on the field. Yeah. Yeah. Problem solving. I, you know, as you were saying too, I, I will say, I do think there's, you know, there's always like checks and balances to like a bandwidth. Like I, cause I do think it's important to look at, like, I do think biomechanics are important because you need to know stuff that also is, you know, going to get you hurt. And that falls so far outside of, you know, whatever normal is, you know, uh, but that's, a, it's like, 
like I look at too, like I almost look at skill stacking in young athletes. Like I, I work with high jumpers. I'll work with like a 12 year old high jumper and it's like a kid doesn't use their arms. And it's like, well, clearly you never have played basketball or volleyball or anything. And you have a, a skill block. Like you don't use your arms. You didn't do enough stuff involving your arms and jumping when you were young. So now what are we going to do? So I'll have those kids like, you know, do skips, single and double arm skips for like hundreds, you know, 150 meters and stuff like that. And trying to, trying to at least give them that experience, um, you know, rather than just telling them to use their arms every jump, cause that's not going to work. You know, you got to almost give them these experiences that will help wire it in. And so, I mean, it's a big and complex thing. I just, I, I did want to mention that, that I don't, I'm not like the, I'm not the do anything person either. Like I do think there's things, but I, I guess what I do think sometimes I think if we all grew up and we did all the movements and we played all the sports <laughs> that were kind of the feeders into what we eventually do, I think that the coaching would be a lot less needed. And, and you wonder, I think there's a lot of issues too, you know, and, and even just like physical robustness too. Um, like, can you articulate your joints, all these joints in all these manners, or is there a block of range of motion at a particular joint? that's going to prevent you from doing something or you know, like you said, can you do basic movements, crawls and rolls and cartwheels? And are you missing something in spatial awareness and your body in space? And so it's, it's super vast. I just, I guess I'll just say I err on the side of you know coaching much less. And I think if you asked any experienced coach, they would say the same thing. So I'm still trying to figure out, you know, the bandwidths and the, you know, everything that goes with that. So it's uh, yeah, hugely fascinating to me. And figuring out this bandwidth, and you, you you mentioned it with the athlete that is very like forebrained and um, going under like he's trying to push himself, he's trying to force, he's trying to be that technical, and he's like he's the um, the mule of the team. Very much like it would it would be me. Like if you had to coach me, you were getting a guy that was not very naturally athletic. Like you grew up in the weight room. We got to where we're at success wise because of having that connection. How are we? And I just know like I have athletes with this is the reason they are at where they're at either whatever level they're at is because they have focused on something more than the next person, you know, like that, that was their winning edge. How are we as coaches? Like what's our best role as a coach to get that athlete to realize, to take that step back, to be like, all right, this, that helped you to this point. But now like our job is to make you more automated, make you less overthinking things, make you less like grindy in the weight room type thing. Cause I'm always interested in like, coaches like you, like what your approach to something like that would be? That's a huge question. Um, yeah, I was just having, I mentioned Paul Cato, I was just having a conversation with him and I, I think we're going to try to put a podcast together on this is basically, we talk about the art and the science. And I like what you mentioned too, I think it's, it does, it's a ceiling, like, like being a grinder and getting stronger and doing, trying to really technical, you are going to get a little better. It's just eventually going to run into a wall. You're going to run into a technical wall. You're going to run into some sort, you're going to run into a body function neurological wall. Cause you spent too much time bilateral stuff. Like you will eventually run into a wall. It's just when, and, and it's part of it's just the willingness to deconstruct an athlete's th process, you know, because if, if I'm a grinder and I'm like, I'm like, you know, hashtag the grind hustle, you know, Gary V or whatever, you know, Eric Thomas, I'm, I'm working harder than everybody else. And that, I mean, people will attach themselves to that too. Like that, it, that becomes a point of attachment. And so it's, I think it, you have to do a good job of educating athletes and a lot of athletes too. They're going to, I've seen this is athletes will close down mentally. Like they will go into threat. You know, if you talk about Z health or neurological stuff, like they will, you watch their body language and you start trying to get them to experience. Like I just talked about, you know, low knees, high knees or something like that. Like I've seen athletes in the water who are starting to experience things that are outside their comfort zone and they go into threat, they shut down, they don't like it. They don't want to do it. And so I think a lot of that comes from, uh, you know, I, I did a podcast with Logan Christopher and I, I'm continually going back. This is the, the base of everything we do is not training. It's actually the emotions and the, the mindset and the belief systems. And that's something I've been very into lately. So I think that you know, Tommy talks a lot about asking why, why are you doing this? Like, why do you love sports? Why do you love doing this? What are you trying to get out of this? Um, I think, and you, maybe myself as a basketball player would have been a good example for me. I think I, I love the athletic dominance element of basketball. I love to be able to dunk, you know, to be able to steal the ball and take it full court and dunk. Like that was probably the pinnacle play of my senior year as I picked off a pass that the point guard threw, took it the whole court and, and dunked it with two guys chase just just threw it down like nasty. I mean, it was totally subconscious too. I didn't, I didn't, I, I basically became conscious. I woke up from the dream when I came off the rim. It was crazy. Um, so to me, that was basketball was almost more about that. And so I think for me to become a good, better player, someone would have to tell me like, look, Joel, like 
there's a lot of guys in the NBA dunk contest who really aren't that great of players, you know, or there's all these, you know, look at all the dunkers on YouTube. Like these guys aren't going to play, you know, an NBA or let alone even college. I mean, they're awesome athletes, you know, for sure. But this is, if you want to be good at basketball, you have to embrace more than this. And you also have to embrace yourself as more than just a high jumper. You are more than that. You know, I was like, and so it's almost like I would have needed someone to tell me that about myself before I could expand my game into more awareness and more elements of my game that did not just involve jumping over people, <laughs> uh, which is what I define myself at. And so I think you have to find, you have to find why people are doing what they're doing. Like it really just goes into the holistic core of why are you doing this in the first place? Cause a lot of times too grinders, like I'll tell you the most grindy people that I've ever worked with are, and again, my experience, I'm, I'm 36. So I've been coaching for 12 throughout 12, 13, 13 years. And so, I mean, I've worked with a lot of athletes, not as many as some people, but I noticed that males, uh, males who had super successful dads that I know pushed them very hard. Um, those are the most grindy people. Like the most, like if you look at facial expressions, everything's like, Err. and one of them in particular I worked with whose dad was a billionaire. Um, I remember he, everything was just like as grindy as you could imagine, like everything was hard and forced and this guy just wasn't improving at all, like in his, in his sport. And I remember telling him, I was like, why can't you just take it easier in here? Why can't you just relax a little bit? And he's like, well, then I'm not working hard enough. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's stuff that it's stuff that really just goes into your beliefs. And so I think it kind of breaks, you have to break down, I think that a little bit to start being able to expand awareness and expand into you know, basically it's a more expansive view of sport itself and the, all the KPIs that actually mean being a good player or a good athlete or, or, or the sensory system and embracing the sensory to me is the softness, you know, weight room and maxes and all stuff. That's, that's the, um, I'm going to screw this up. That's the yang. That's the hardness. That's the fire. But then the sensory and the awareness piece and the, I mean, that's the art to me, that's the softness and you will not be the best without both. You absolutely will not. You can only get so far being one. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other things you could take there, but I think, so you have to embrace both and you have to look at the underlying belief systems that have created an imbalance towards one or the other. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely love that point because this is something that I've been writing about myself is what is rewarded in the weight room and what as coaches are we rewarding with our kids? And almost all the time, it's the, it's the hard stuff that you talked about. It, it's the, it's the grind. It's the one more rep. Like, it's the mules that we love to reward. Like guys like me, like this is, this is why I did it in college and high school. And like growing up is because every time I worked hard, like you were rewarded for it, you were told good job. So you're trained in that way. Now, like as a coach, if you're thinking about it, like how do we find ways to reward that same athlete, but reward them for the creative, reward them for that soft, reward them for the art that you mentioned and trying to train them in that way. Like, all right, now this is, this is, the good part of it. Like, this is what the coach is going to like. This is because that's what you find with a lot of grinders too, is they're like you said, with the billionaire dad, like they're probably trying to please somebody. I mean, most people are trying to please, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to fulfill something like that. And how can we find a way to make a process of helping that athlete and rewarding that athlete for something that's actually going to help them rather than doing the easy thing, which is, Oh, he squatted a bunch of weight. It looked cool. It makes you look good as a coach because he's moving a lot of weight and you're like, yeah, good job there. Like rather than the, the art aspect of it. I love that. I love that. I'm going to take that with me. That's awesome. Um, Cause I was just thinking, I mean, I think about, well, even social media, what gets more likes on social media, someone who does a big squat or someone who does something new and creatively on in like, I mean, granted, you know, fancy and creative, you know, strength exercises are always, Oh, this is intriguing. But like just someone who made a move differently in basketball or football, you know, just, and like, I think in the perception and action space, like praising creativity is, I, I love that. And I, I even think about, you know, with my children, like it starts now they're two and three. And I think to myself, I'm really careful what I praise them for, you know, like I, I, I really watch myself because I see like, you're at the playground, you see other you know kids and their parents and you see a kid like shoot a basket and the dad's like, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like I want to be like, yeah, for everything. My kid, I don't want to be, cause you really start to put your kid into this box of, Oh, I did this. I was rewarded for this and da, 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 da. But yeah, like, like, rewarding the art or almost like a day where I like, like Paul does this cater. He's like, he'll, he'll, he'll put a canvas out. And this is so much better than being on your phone between sets is like, he'll put a canvas out and he'll work on a painting between sets or something like that. Or, or you can even think like, I don't know, have a dance competition between sets who can, you know, who can do the most creative, uh, even, even when I was in high school basketball too, it's interesting. You think like, 
what was you were I was always rewarded for doing what the coach said in the set play, right? I mean, then there's not that's not like terrible. I think there is discipline, but like I never was rewarded for being creative. And that's huge. I love that. I will definitely keep that with me. Yeah, I, I love the the art aspect. That's that's on a total different level of even what so like my the best thing, the best solution that I've tried to come up with is obviously complementing the small side of games and stuff that we've done, but adding so let's say if we do like um a lunch I'll have lunch variation in there and or uh, jump variation. And then rather than rewarding the most weights or not reward, but just saying good job on the most weight, I try to be conscious about, all right, let's reward the most creative solution. Let's reward the most creative. And again, trying to keep it to where we're not getting stupid or silly about yeah, the exercise, yeah. what we're trying to do. But that that's kind of been my process. And I do it, especially with guys that I know are like me of trying, how can we rewire that? And that's, but the, the, the painting and stuff like that, that's, that's even next level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I, I haven't actually done, I, I was doing it the other day. I had a little, I'd have a paint cast, but I was just doing a little sketch pad between like some, some sets and stuff, just trying to find stuff to, although honestly, I, if I'm out, um, like if I'm out the track working out, my, my, my rest intervals are usually just watching other people run or walk around trying to figure out their gait patterns and stuff, but just in the gym. Yeah. It's uh, and it kind of takes us back to what I said, you know, beginning it's like kids, if you, it's like left brain, right brain or something in your uh, right brain being the creative brain is left hand. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't let the right brain, you know, foster correctly for however many years as a young child, you will limit creative output if you start putting analytics in there too soon. And so it is a balance. I'm glad you did. You mentioned too, like, you know, not letting it get too crazy. Cause I think it's easy to create a straw man with all this stuff and just say, Oh, these people are just letting out, they see whatever they want. They just, there's no structure. Blah, blah, blah. Like it's always a balance, but I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. The, the, the silly part, uh, idol, I think it's Ido portal. Um, he, he had a documentary and he was talking about like, don't confuse the playful approach for like the silly approach. He's like, that's just a shitty playful approach. Like <laughs> you, if you're, if you're doing playful and you're doing some of these small sided games, or you're doing some of this grappling type stuff. Like a lot of times you'll bleed. Like a lot of times you'll be like 100% making noise. It's just like a max effort squat. And he's like, that's just what you have to do. Like don't confuse the playful approach for the, the, the silly approach, the shitty playful approach. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Totally, yeah. Just like kids playing you know could you call it say kids playing you know, seven-year-olds making up their own game and rules is a you know that's play that's that's where it's at boom i love some of these rabbit holes let's transition to rapid fire rounds here and the the first question and these these all these questions are kind of selfish questions on my part just because i like to know the answers and what you have so the first one is kind of your favorite books like books that really have opened your mind to some of this stuff yeah. I mean, I do read a lot. If I was to tell you my favorite books now, I, I haven't, it sounds arrogant to say I don't read training books anymore. It just cause I mean, I do, you know, like yourself, I do a podcast. A lot of my information comes from just talking to people. Like that's where it has gone. And I think that's where a lot of people's information. I don't think we read books as much as we probably did 10 years ago. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't, I think our information mode has changed. So a lot of my information I do get a podcast and conversations. Um, I'll say, so I'll list a few. I'll say the first book, actually sitting right here, um, this guy Rocky Snyder sent this to me. It's called Return to Center. It's the first training book that I've actually like devoured in a long time because um, he's a Gary Ward guy. And so it's just, I just think he does corrective exercise. Like, because it's always, why is corrective exercise so debated? Just because there's, I think, a mil there's so many different like little things that go into it, you know, neural vision, uh, joint position, you know, breathe, all this stuff. And he just does a really good job of that. So that's been the training book that I think I've read recently. Also Helen Hall's book um, on, uh, you called Even With Your Shoes On, which is also in the Gary uh, Ward train was another book that I completely devoured. And that book is exactly what we're talking about, about um, guiding people into their running technique, not forcing the best book I've ever read for, if you want just like, here's a skill running A to Z, how do I guide someone into this by allowing them experience pressures and joint sensation and joint position and not really even saying a thing. Best book I've ever read. Amazing. I listened uh, to your uh, side note. I listened to your podcast uh, with her and it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. She's, she is just, her mind is so expansive. She's awesome. Um, and, and it's just really fun to, uh, yeah, it was, it was really fun to sit down and talk with her and read her books. So I, that stuff sticks with me big and it works. It, I tell you, it, it works. You got some crossover gate. Like it's not even complicated to fix it. It's just, it just read a book. It's, it's very, and all this stuff is in the same place, corrective exercise, correcting technique. It's just giving people the, the experience of oftentimes what they don't have. Sometimes what they do have though, and that's a Rocky's book. I'm starting to get more into that. So uh, that, and then, you know, outside of that, I, I mean, I'll just speak to a lot of books I've read recently is, I mean, a lot of my stuff is in the mind and it's in, you know, human consciousness and why we are the way we are. And so, 
uh, just stuff like reading stuff like Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, which is just like basically these common myths that kind of unite humanity and how uh, just the story of humanity. Um, beginning to like Carl Jung stuff, <laughs> Charles Eisenstein. He's a, like a lot of like economists and social dynamics. And, and, to, and so I've been reading a lot of his stuff. He does, uh, if you YouTube some of his, some of his work, he's really good. And so a lot of my interests in reading has been, um, Robert Greene, Laws of Human Nature was a bit, one I read last year, it was like 550 pages, massive. But to me, more looking at the governing dynamics of how do we behave as humans and what are, just what are some of the things that cause us to be the way we are? Because I think that a lot of times we talk about, well, what's the perfect sporting? Well, there's no such thing. But where does like youth sports need to go? Why is our sports system broken? Because I, I, these are questions that are bigger than just training. You know, it's all, it's, I mean, I do believe like as above, so below. Like the reason that, you know, training might be, you know, holding some athlete back a certain way could be a bigger or smaller, you know, symptom. So a lot of what I'm reading is just, trying to kind of find the bigger themes. And that's kind of always where I've been heading, usually getting myself in over my head too. I'm always in over my head with whatever project I try to get into. So um, that's the next one. But yeah, Charles Eisenstein has been amazing. And so I'd recommend, you know, uh, it's, uh, the one I'm reading now is called um, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And I'm also I'll read Sacred Economics after that, but that's not really to do with training quite so much. Oh, that's, uh, I love that. And you, you talked about how the, the rabbit hole that brings you into of like, why are people the way they are? Or why are we the way you are? And the deeper you get into that hole, the deeper you're like, oh crap. Like there's so much stuff there. Yeah. Why I should say, why am I the way I am? That's my question. Yeah. I shouldn't, Cause it makes me sound like, why is that person how they are? Their person's so terrible. No, it's, it's why, yeah, it's, it's not that it's just, it's just how can we all be better to each other? And how can I be better to myself and better to other people? It'd be the, probably the real question. So Yeah. I love it. And next question, and this is kind of how we got you on the podcast with Dr. Tommy John recommending you. Um, but who's a guest that you think we should have on that can bring us down one of these rabbit holes? That's good. That's a good question. I, I mean, it would, depends on which rabbit hole. Um, I should say, you know, I guess I'll, I'll say it. I, I, I want to, you know, Paul Cater is a guy who I need to have on my show because I don't want to say someone who's been on my show. I want to say people who I'm trying to get on my show. So uh, I want to do one with Paul Cater. I think Paul, Paul is a guy who he thinks differently, but he is totally everything we're talking about. He has an awesome perspective. I, I've never heard anyone who has quite his perspective on it. And I've also had the honor of training with him in person several times. And it is just, I mean, he was doing a lot of this stuff, like even like the rep without rep stuff without even having read or heard about it, you know, like, like I'll work out with him. He's like, he's just like, grab some 60 pound dumbbells, just do some bench presses. However you can figure it out, you know, like do your own thing. Like he's always injecting art and creativity. It's for him. It's very intuitive and natural. And so, yeah, he's a, he's a good dude and a good guy to talk to. And I'm going to try to get it on my show. So I think he would be a good, a good guest as well. Love that. And next question, and we, we kind of talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but what's kind of next for you? Maybe it's the next one-year goal or five-year goal. Like, what's the next step for you? Yeah, that's a yeah. I saw that, and I, I had a. I feel like I had a good answer. <laughs> well, I'll just say, I'm. Uh, I am. I think I did allude to it. Like, I'm leaving my full-time job at UC Berkeley to uh, t- to do just fly sports and and then train people privately and get back into coaching track and field. This time on the high school level, and honestly, I just like to get more into sport coaching too. You see. I just, after going through all this perception reaction stuff and, and you can't just, I feel like I can't just live in the weight room. You know, I know you coach football as well. Like I want to experience other, you know, the fullness of this, this thing we call athletics. And so, um, that, that would be where I'm headed. Um, I think that if you ask what I'm trying to do, I mean, you know, the, the grandiose part of me that I, I try to deal with would say, I want to change sports forever, forever, you know, like, or something, but that's, to me, it's just what I said. I just, I, if, if I could say I did anything, it would just be to allow athletes to know the true power that lives inside them and to not let, you know, a coach or a parent or, you know, whatever, to get that power back if it's been taken from you and to realize that you have more potential than you think you do. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think that answers like, what do you want your legacy to be with your athletes? Because that's, you, you want to give the power back to them. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the very last question of the podcast, we've almost made it all the way through. And this is, this is one of my favorites, but what's kind of your billboard message that somebody that to somebody that's in that valley. So maybe it's the, the spot that you were at where you couldn't find that job and you're really excited for that, or you just didn't have that passion. Like what's kind of your billboard message for that person to make sure they keep going to find what they love. I don't have anything that totally unique to me, but something that Tony Robbins said that always sticks with me is, uh, is life happens for you, not to you. And so no matter where you are, you have to remember that. And, you know, I, 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 if I had some sort of message too to encapsulate just that it's not your circumstances that define you, like in the middle of like, I was at Napoleon Hill. I was reading a little Napoleon Hill, right. When all this COVID stuff started kind of going down. Cause it's like, you know, here am I trying to like 
take my business full time. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on with all the economy and all this stuff. And I, I was just reading a passage about just like, you know, and he, his work came out in the depression and, you know, some people credit him with actually helping people kind of lift the depression, the mindset, you know, just the general mindset and the mentality. And, and I had this realization, like if you just, no matter where you are, if you can just stand up tall and proud and stick your chest out and be confident and be the person you want to be, that speaks a lot. Cause you can, it's like using your body to supersede your, I think that's a Tony Robbins. I know that's a Tony Robbins thing. You know, you can use it. That's an NLP thing is use your body to supersede what you might be feeling. I, Grant, I also, I don't want to rabble this, but you, I don't think you should run from your feelings either. I think it's important to sit with them, but I just think that you can, you can, um, you can be a lot more than I think your circumstances. So, uh, but I, I will stick with the life happens for you, not to you one as my billboard. Cause I like that. Heck yeah. Coach, we did it. This was awesome. We did. Yeah. Thanks, Austin. It's been, huh, we've, we've, that time just flew by. So uh, yeah, it's been a great hour and 15 or so that I was able to speak, speak with you there. And thank you for uh, I, I, that creativity stuff and, and praising that, man, I'll take that with me. So thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for being on coach. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.